Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hello, everyone, and welcome to There's No Business Like. I'm Katie Miller, Senior Manager of Community Engagement at the Midland Center for the Arts, and I am here with my fellow arts administrators, Kevin. Kevin Maynard, Executive Director of Quad City Arts. Brian. Brian Zelmer, Director of KU Presents. Hey, Danielle. Oh, hey, it's Danielle Van Hook from the Alden in McLean, Virginia. And last but not least, Josh. Josh Benson, rocking it from Marion, Illinois at the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. I'm so excited for our interview today with Caroline Myers from the Des Moines Performing Arts Center. But before we get to my conversation with Caroline... I wanted to ask you all, what is your favorite piece of family programming that you've ever presented at your venue? Um, As the person who does programming in our venue, I'm going to say all of it. (laughs) And I would expect nothing less, Danielle. (laughs) It's all been perfect and fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) The first thing that comes to mind, though, is this really incredible show we did last year called Doodle Pop by Brush Theater, which is out of South Korea. Um, is represented by the Holdens. And it's so hard to describe, but it was essentially a two-person show um, with live music and integration with technology. I haven't seen any other show that uses technology and storytelling the way that they did. And the visual of the show is almost two-dimensional. And like the way that they can portray something that's so obviously three-dimensional in that kind of style there's so many small details that are just so exciting and the way that it builds to just this little bit of color at the end was one of the best pieces of programming i think we've seen in our venue in a long time and at the time my twins were three and are very active and they sat still for about an hour and watched the show and now when they talk about mama's work they reference um, a turtle at the end of that show and they talk about how there's a turtle where I work. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to say my favorite was probably getting a chance to present Lori Berkner when I was in the, at the Rialto. All four of my kids grew up loving her music and, you know, we'd sing it all the time. I learned a lot of her songs on guitar and would play them myself with them and they, and they would love to sing them. So my kids were grown by the time I got to present her, but it was still like a thrill for me to to work with her in person. And it was really great because she was so gracious. And, and it was one of my favorite experiences because we had a family approach us who had a child with a disability who was extremely sensitive to any kind of overstimulation of any sort. Um, and he was a huge Lori Berkner fan, watched her videos every day. They just wanted to be there. They knew they couldn't be in the concert hall. And so they just asked if there was some place in the building where they could still kind of sort of have a chance to observe the concert. And I realized that we had a closed circuit TV system and upstairs in our big conference room, um, we had this giant TV that they we could just turn on the closed circuit and, and they'd be able to see and hear Lori on the stage. And they loved the idea. So I set them up in there. They turned the lights off. You know, we closed the shades and everything and they were nice and quiet and, and really enjoyed their time. Lori did a meet and greet and, um, and I had told her about this this young man who was a fan of his, and they were in this other room though, and and how he was overstimulated. And she asked, you know, where's this room when she was done with the mean greet? And I showed her, and she quietly knocked and talked to the mom, and they were so excited. She went in there, and she didn't just go and say hi. Like she spent like a half hour with this child, and I was so impressed by that because I, you know, I would turn to her like I was standing outside the room, and I'd get her attention, be like, "Do you want me to save you? Do you, you know?" Because she was a really long time. She's like, "No, no, I'm fine." She's like, "If you need to go do something, that's fine." And 
and it was so gracious of her and the parents couldn't have been more thankful. It was like the most amazing experience they ever had. And, uh, you know, according to them, that's what they told me. And it was just very touching. And, and that made me love Lori Berkner even more. My gosh, Brian, I love that. Well, and Brian, Lori is such a legend in the children's music world. And I will tell you that uh, we brush our teeth to Lori's like fish <laughs> song. Uh, that's how Leo learned to learned how to brush his teeth. So she also has a toothbrushing song, but anyway, yeah, my daughter loved that one. Gonna have to find that one. <laughs> so we haven't historically done a lot of family programming. Um, we we are changing that um, and starting to incorporate more family programming into what we do. Um, but we, we've always had local theater companies that have put on, uh, different shows in the hall and, and bus kids in for them. And one of my favorites was a production of Beauty and the Beast. They did the entire thing as steampunk. And so everyone was represented as a mechanism or like a creation. It was just a, a different way to do the magic. And I just, I love that different concept when applied to Beauty and the Beast. Which mechanism was your favorite? My favorite mechanism was the feather duster because they had cables and gears across the shoulders that would cause the feathers to move back and forth in that costume. It was just really cool. That is yeah. really cool. Back when I was at the Orpheum Theater, we used to have our, our youth entertainment series. And before I started there, they had sort of some stringent rules about like what could be on the series, what couldn't be on the series. And it was very much like sort of that, that concept of like, what is art? What is theater? That kind of thing. And so one of the first things that I, I brought in was Dr. Kaboom from Simon Shaw. Um, you know, lots of fun energy, like has a nice science base, but really is like very engaging with, with children. It was for me, it was the first time that I had seen a performer on our stage that you could literally watch the kids light up and you could see like why this was impactful. Um, and for us, like the added benefit was that there was the education component, which that was at the time was, was you had to have some sort of education component. Like you couldn't talk about all the great things that, you know, theater does outside of just, you know, the learning aspect of it. But it was the first time that the shift started happening of like, oh, like this is also something that is really beneficial for for students and for, you know, families. And so what we we booked that for our youth shows during the day and then we had him do a night performance. Um, and it was surprising the amount of people who came that, you know, didn't have kids, but just thought it looked like something fun to check out and a, a low cost ticket price. And just, you know, if you've ever worked with Dr. Kaboom, it was a lot of fun. And it was the first time we had a performer uh, on stage that actually uh, called out a teacher in the audience for continually using her cell phone. Um, and it was the last time that happened during that series. So <laughs> go Dr. Kaboom. I know. I was like, I was like, yeah, like all of our volunteers were like, yeah, you get them. <laughs> um, but just like laid the groundwork of like, Hey, uh, you know, these students are learning from you right now. Like they're, this is a learned behavior. And I was like, that's awesome. Bravo, man. It would have been even better if she, if he blew up her phone. Kaboom! <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Family programming, school Monday programming is a huge component of what I do here at the Midland Center for the Arts. And it is really hard for me to pick one particular show that I have I have presented in the last five years. Um, so I'm going to go back even further to my days at the Playhouse at White Lake. And I used to book the MSU Acapellas or the Michigan State University Acapellas, um, which is one of the acapella groups on campus to come and perform annually as a, a fundraiser for our youth theater education program. I thought it was really important for our youth theater students to see examples of students not that much older than them still pursuing the arts during their college years. Um, even if that wasn't going to be their major, 
they could still, you know, participate in the arts in some way, shape or form. And then they would get to like have pizza with the kids afterwards and talk with them. And it was a really successful fundraiser for them. And yeah, it was really fun to see them perform and have them on our stage. So it's one of my favorite pieces of of family programming that I've done. So excited for everyone to hear this conversation I'm going to have here with Caroline in just a moment. We talk about family programming, school matinee programming, marketing, intergenerational leadership. Hope you really enjoy. Hi, I'm Caroline Myers, Director of Education at DeWine Performing Arts. Hello, Caroline. Welcome to There's No Business Like. So excited to have you on the podcast today. Um, So Caroline and I know each other through our work in family and school matinee programming. And I think we met on Zoom and now we're actually friends in real life. It it is amazing how some of those Zoom connections over the last few Mm -hmm. years uh, opened up new opportunities for relationship building and collaborating. And it's so, so exciting that now we've actually had the opportunity to meet in person. It is so it's so great because I feel like we have the same programming brain um, and we have exchanged so many emails about programming and what are you bringing in and what are you thinking about? And so I just really appreciate you spending time with us today and I'm ready to dive into some great conversation. Looking forward to it. What I'd like to really start with today is let's start with your origin story. How did you get into the performing arts and how did you end up where you are today? Yeah, it's always interesting. And I think, you know, as somebody who works with a lot of young people, I oftentimes have people ask me, like, how do I how do I do what you do? What do I need to study? There's no one pathway. And looking back at it, it kind of feels like maybe where I landed with my career feels inevitable, but at the time it certainly didn't. Um, I was definitely a young person that really enjoyed the arts. I found really kind of my passion and where I found my joy was I was very much in band and I was the theater kid and choir and doing all of those things in school really was kind of my extracurricular and my heart outside of the classroom, but knew by the time I was ready to start college that I did not want to pursue a performance career. I knew that much about myself. Ended up at a school that has a really robust music program and encourages participation by majors and non-majors, but they also have a fantastic professional fine arts series that they let students take a really large part in helping to manage. So. I started by volunteering and doing front of housework. And then I did all of our on-campus publicity and marketing efforts. We kind of got some hands-on marketing skills for the arts um, and then kind of took leadership of that student committee where I was kind of coordinating all of our student volunteers and even had the opportunity as a college student to attend the APAP booking conference a few times. And so it was this real crash course in arts administration and opening my eyes up to this whole ecosystem that was happening behind the scenes that as a young person, even as one who enjoyed participating in the arts, really had no idea that this whole world existed, making it happen behind the scenes. And then even upon graduation, still wasn't really sure that this was my pathway, but really kind of got connected through that network with uh, an opportunity that opened here in Des Moines that was in the education department and thought, well, I'll, I'll try it. And it ended up being this amazing fit uh, with some of my other interest areas that I was also cultivating along the way. I'd always really enjoyed working with young people. My job for many years in college in the summers was working in childcare and doing programming for school-aged children. And so it became this really unique fit of all of these different parts of me that I had been exploring and just didn't quite see on the front end how those could all come together and manifest themselves in a professional career. But I am so glad they did. I love that journey and the hands-on learning opportunity that you had during your college years that's not always the case with students that are interested in pursuing maybe the business side or the admin side of things 
So I've loved that for you. I think that's like a really special part of your journey. Yeah, it was a really special investment that the college was doing at the time. And some of it was necessity of just how are you creating that workforce to make these these fine arts events happen? Uh, but at the same time, it gave me so much resume building, career skills, and just the ability to really pivot that. And as a young professional say, I can step in and I can I can do this. I can do the pieces that you need for this growing program. Wow, that's so cool. So then once you ended up in Des Moines, what have your roles been there since you since you landed there? So I have been with Des Moines Performing Arts, believe it or not, I'm coming up on 13 years, which is much longer than I think I would have anticipated when I first started. Um, and I've been with our education programs for that entire duration, but I have seen my role grow and evolve and shift. Um, I've been very blessed and fortunate to be with an organization that kind of in the first half of my tenure was really committed to growing and expanding the breadth of our programs. We got to design on the the ground level a lot of the programs that we've introduced and then have worked my way up into more of a management role. And now I'm leading our, our department. And it's a much bigger department than it was when I started. So <laughs> it's been kind of wild to, to think back on the evolution and all of the kind of different mile markers that we've hit with the growth and expansion of our programs and the opportunity to grow alongside them. That's fascinating. And so I want to dive into that growth trajectory for you um, alongside not only you per, uh, personally, but also the programming side. So can you tell us a little bit about the elements of the arts education programming um, at Des Moines? And then you mentioned you have the opportunity to actually grow those and design some of those program elements. So can you talk us a little bit through what you're currently doing and then what were some of those opportunities that you had to design some of those programs? You know, as we think about kind of our slate of programs, and, and many of these programs are ones that our, our counterparts and other performing arts organizations also have, but I think every organization with an education program kind of looks at a unique way of how they put the puzzle together based on their particular mission and interest and their community need. Uh, but for Des Moines, so our largest program is our Boston School Matinee Program. Uh, and that was the program that was really in existence. It was the first program we introduced. I actually came through that program as a young person, if you can believe it. Um, so our, our Boston School Matinee program uh, is quite large, generally 12 to 14 titles a year. And uh, pre-pandemic, we're serving about 50,000 students a year through that program. So it's, wow, that's incredible. it's quite sizable with its reach. Um, so that's definitely kind of what we're most known for. If people only know one thing. Uh, and then we do quite a bit of work of trying to get artists out into classrooms. We have a teacher professional development program that we run in connection with the John F. Kennedy Center's Partners in Education program. So how do you bring arts into everyday classroom instructional strategies using arts integration? Uh, so those are kind of our curriculum-based side of work in our education programs. We also do quite a bit uh, with musical theater education, where the state's largest Broadway presenter. So musical theater and Broadway is very near and dear to our heart. Um, our summer camps largely have a musical theater focus. Uh, and we also run the statewide Iowa High School Musical Theater Awards programs. We work with schools all across the state, uh, sending reviewers out to see their high school shows, giving them feedback to help them grow and strengthen their school drama programs, and then providing opportunities to celebrate the work that's happening in those school drama programs. Uh, we're a national affiliate to the Jimmy Awards through the Broadway League. So there, awesome. are, there are several programs like that across the country, and we're very fortunate to work on the one that serves our state. Moving out of kind of the school realm and specifically thinking about young people, we have our slate of community and audience engagement opportunities. And this is largely working with how can we build meaningful connections with the art on our stages, with the different tours coming through, whether it's Broadway, dance, music, 
and working with those artists to get them out into the community to build meaningful connections with folks that maybe wouldn't come through our doors through a traditional ticket pathway. Uh-huh. So workshops, master classes, kind of breaking down those barriers and helping to build personal and meaningful connections between community members, audience members, and the artists on our stages. Wow, that is a lot. That is a lot to manage. It's a lot to keep track of. And it's a lot of spinning plates. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And so so which of those programs maybe did you feel like you have the most ownership of or really helped develop over the course of your career? What was that like to be able to actually like take something from maybe an idea Mm -hmm. to fruition? So when I look back at kind of the slate of programs that we had, the the only ones that were in existence prior to my starting and joining the team was the school matinee series, which was scaled considerably smaller when I started. So we saw this really rapid growth in the first handful of years that I was on the team, which was uh, due to a variety of factors, both with some commitments that the organization had made to reduce ticket prices, to increase access and some other things that were happening in the community. So that really skyrocketed. And in those first years, I really got to dig in and kind of develop what our curriculum materials and supports look like. My degree is actually in English. So I was able to put put my writing skills to use on in addition to events management and helping to put uh, here are the themes or here are the big ideas in this production and how can I distill those down and help young people make those connections. So it was really great to put a stamp on that and was able to quite early in my career was to go performing arts, kind of take on the lead programming role for that series. So it was great to have that ownership. We introduced summer camps very early in my tenure. We've seen those grow. And I was also part of the team that launched the IY School Musical Theater Awards 10 years ago. So that's probably the one that feels like it has one of the biggest pieces of my heart because we started with nine schools participating that first year, very much in central Iowa. And today it serves over 90 schools in every single corner of the state and has become this really flagship program for, for the theater students and schools across the state. So that feels uh, particularly, it's it's a big machine, but it's one that I can remember lots of late conversations and trying to think through what are, what are we dreaming up now in this first iteration and what are we doing to set the building blocks for where we see this potentially yeah. going and really building a strong foundation for what we want this program to look like long-term yeah. and our goals for how it can be a big piece of the puzzle for the makeup of arts education in our state. Oh, my musical theater loving heart just sings at the thought of a program of that scale and yeah. size. <laughs> no, it's it's one of those programs that, that in some of our summer camps that I look at what young people get to do through those programs and I go, I'm so proud of them and the skills that they bring. And I'm also very jealous when I think back to how yeah. I would have loved that oh as my a 14, 15 or 16 year old um, and go, do you know how lucky you are? And they do, they feel, uh, they're so grateful and such wonderful, wonderful participants. But that, those in particular are the programs that probably have feel nearest and dearest to my heart in terms of from inception to design, to seeing them really take off and, and really become an institutionalized piece of the fabric That's, of our organization wow. yeah. and the arts ecosystem in the communities that we serve. That's so great. And I think it's so rewarding as a young professional to have the opportunity to do that, have the guidance and mentorship along the way to, like you said, set the stage, set the building blocks, and then see where it can go from there. Um, I've had the opportunity to do a few of those types of programs as well. And it it's a lot of hard work, but it also is incredibly rewarding. It absolutely is. And I think sometimes I look back at that, I'm also looking at just feeling very blessed to be with an organization that has put their resources and their money where their mouth is on these things and saying, we're going to figure out how to make it work. And um, 
the ability to say, and we're going to grow it incrementally over time. We don't have to do everything all at once, but we we have that long game in mind for what what we want the world to look like and how we can how we can set it up in our own small way. That's great. I love um, the match of mission and vision and money. So it's kind of the elephant in the room. You gotta you gotta figure out that piece. So very very thankful that we've had such a supportive community and uh, very thankful that I'm in an organization. I, I understand I have the privilege of working with a large organization in terms of presenting organizations. So um, I have colleagues that specialize in that and I can come and tell the story and help uh, paint the picture of mission and impact. But I am very grateful that I've got great teammates that are helping to pull those pieces together to yeah. make it possible to do what we've been able to do over the last uh, 13 years during yeah. my tenure. That's incredible. And that's a perfect segue into the next thing I want to chat about, which is um, that kind of meshing of community engagement, education, advocacy, and audience building work. So education, lots of times for performing arts organizations, is kind of at the core of those that intersection because you have the community engagement part, you have advocacy because you are talking to donors, you're talking to funders, you're talking to other community entities about the importance of arts education in particular. Um, and then there's like an audience building component. So as someone that's been doing this work, can you define for us a little bit like in your world at least, what does community engagement mean versus audience building? And then how do those pieces fit with education? How Des Moines puts those things together for not only your local community, but really at a state level. Katie, you've been in enough of these conversations at, at conferences or gatherings that sometimes we get really hung up on what's the difference between education and engagement. We must define these things. Oftentimes, education becomes this catch-all, but to the outside observer, education means schools or it means something really formal. And certainly we do a lot of work with schools and we're trying to tie into their objectives. And they're they're one of our biggest community partners in terms of delivering content and working with young people. And community engagement to me is kind of that that two-way back and forth. Oftentimes, I think for many years, outreach was really the, the word that was in vogue, but it kind of had this one-way connotation of we're, we're going out to you and we're bringing all of the answers and we're gonna bring you this great thing. But I think community engagement is much more about what are the partnerships that we can build and where can we find mutual satisfaction or things that are beneficial uh, with the programming that we have or the artists that we have the pleasure to work with and meeting with you. So really finding that unique match. Community engagement in some ways, at least as I look at across our programs, maybe feels a little bit more nimble and a little bit more bespoke because we're oftentimes matchmaking between artists and we might have community groups that we have long-standing relationships with and we're always kind of on the hunt for the right opportunity to engage them and keep them in as part of our family but we're also always open to when we work with an artist who do you like to work with what's really meaningful for you when you show up in a community and say well maybe that's not somewhere that we have a relationship now but we'll we'll certainly do our best to cultivate so kind of this idea of arts for everyone arts everywhere and thinking about in particular where we can use our resources to meet those that might not have access to the arts in traditional pathways and you just mentioned um you know arts for all our participation barriers to participation in the arts for me that community engagement piece has a lot to do with understanding barriers and trying to find ways over around under and through yeah. so you can get to that access for all 
point in this kind of world of education and engagement, what are the barriers that you experience or your team experiences? And um, have you found any success, especially in like the current moment post pandemic of finding creative solutions so that you can still move forward with that mission of access and building mm-hmm. those partnerships, finding, um, like you said, those matches, those creative okay. matches for building greater access and engagement. I think as we're looking at the world that we're coming out of, everyone has been through through quite a bit. The communities that had challenges before, uh, those have only grown. And as we think about bandwidth and people's just emotional ability to take on more, sometimes when we're looking at community engagement, it seems like a great opportunity, but we have to be really mindful of, even when we're bringing something to you or we're making an offering for something that's free, that still takes mental energy and time on the the backs of our partners. Entering into those conversations really open-hearted and not having set expectations about what that experience will look like, thinking through and, and having the opportunity to invite, share with me what your hope is for this experience, share with me what you see as the barriers, and then let's think really creatively together about how we can remove as many of those as possible is really important. And also being willing to say, if it's not the right fit right now, we understand and we want to just keep this relationship going. So when we do have the opportunity that's the right fit, we'll already have a relationship built on mutual respect and understanding. So I think keeping in mind that long game has been really beneficial, especially in a time where the barriers do feel higher and knowing that sometimes we have these great plans and they they don't come across the finish line with a particular group. It's really the same things that we think about, Katie, as we're working with agents and we're looking at artists to book, like that relationship is long-term before we sometimes can always make that match happen. That long vision is really important and that really listening and figuring out how to make that match and being okay when it's maybe a not now. Because when it is yes and it's time, that's beautiful. And it makes me all the much more special. Let's shift a little bit. I want to talk, go back to matinee and family programming. Um, so we share uh, in our professional lives, we both program school matinee series for our respective organizations. And we have talked a lot about potential programs and what do you think? And so what is your programming philosophy? Because you program 12 to 14 matinee shows a year. I um, mean, for those that may not be familiar with this programming model, what does a school matinee series kind of look like? And then what is your programming philosophy? What are the things that you are on the lookout for when it comes to artists that you're going to bring in? Because you're going to be servicing twenty-five to 50,000 kids in a year. Right. Uh, so that's a lot of different things to take into consideration. Yeah. So, you know, high level, if for those who might be listening who don't have a strong sense of what kind of school matinee programming looks like in the touring sphere, these are typically us in programs where you are bringing in professional touring artists or companies that have a focus on work for young audiences, or they've developed maybe a shortened version of their public show that is appropriate for school audiences. These are typically hour-long experiences. Some some go longer, but the, the standard model is a 60-minute start to finish. So we're really thinking about bus schedules and pick up and drop off and school bunch schedules, like school calendars are no joke when you mess with them with a no. field trip in the middle of it. So <laughs> Not, that, yeah. that 60 minutes feels <laughs> really, really important. Um, for schools to be able to say, yes, we can make this opportunity happen. And to us at the Wind Performing Arts, we love bringing artists out into schools, but it's been really important to us to have access points for students to be able to come in to our venues, see our theaters, and to know that our venues are a place where they are welcome. Our public schools and all schools really serve students from all different backgrounds and walks of life, including those who have families that have not traditionally come to the theater. So this 
is oftentimes their very first opportunity to see a live performing arts event for us to come downtown, even students that live right in Des Moines proper, and then they only be a couple of miles from our venue. This may be the first time that they've been to the downtown core and are looking around and, and seeing our building. So I, I love standing in our lobbies on days when students come in and watching the the bright eyes and the big reactions and the, the, just hearing the, the chatter and of the excitement. So there's that like very basic, we want you to feel welcome here and we want you to have a positive experience and to know that you this is this is a place for you. This place is for you, just like it is for any other community member. And then in terms of programming philosophy, different school matinee presenters may have a very specific target or focus on the age groups that they're programming for or the art forms that they're programming for. We try to have options every year for students as young as preschool up through high school. So as I'm looking at titles, I'm looking at what's what's the range and the entry point, knowing that we have our biggest demand for elementary and then it tapers off the middle school and very few high schools. So there's always kind of that matchmaking. And we're also really committed to having a variety of genres of art forms represented. So theater, dance, music, cultural art forms, spectacle and circus. We might not hit every single one of those every single year, but we want that to be in our programming mix. And of course, we're also thinking about the diversity of voices and stories on our stages. We want right. students, as they come in, to see themselves reflected on in, on stage and the stories that we're telling, or to have the opportunity to encounter maybe somebody's story from a very different background from themselves, but have the opportunity and using the arts as a window to say, oh, but I relate to that person and we're more alike than we realized. So a lot of it is kind of the social emotional and how are we seeing the world and really giving young people the opportunity to connect with who they are on a deeper level and to really see the possibilities for themselves by inciting that sense of wonder and curiosity and inquisitiveness that the performing arts can provide. Yeah. Yes. Snaps. All the way around, Caroline. Snaps. There we go. I'm yes. preaching to the choir. <laughs> <laughs> you totally are. And also the curriculum aspect of matinee programs is also very important. Okay. And I will go on the record saying I have borrowed some of Caroline's <laughs> curriculum guides in the past for shows that I have booked after Caroline has had them. So what about that curriculum tie-in? And is that a selling point for educators in making these opportunities available to their students? You know, curriculum connections are are definitely a selling point and something to consider. As I'm programming, I'm always on the lookout for things that feel like they're natural ties to curriculum or learning objectives. But I'm also not a programmer that says it must check all of these boxes. I think that there is a whole range of really meaningful arts experiences that speak to young people and their experiences and who they are as humans that maybe don't fit in the, well, this is the exact social studies unit that we're studying in fourth grade, or this is the exact title that we're reading in our literacy classroom. When we find those connections, that's great. But I also don't like to limit ourselves to that. And then our job as the education team um, and as somebody who wrote curriculum materials for many years and now have a fabulous colleague who takes the lead on that. So I want to give a huge shout out to, to Sarah Perez on her work on that. It's our job to help find those connections for teachers when your teachers have so much on their plates and so much that they're responsible for. So we've really built that trust with teachers that they can be assured that if they book an experience with us, whether they can see the connections on the surface or not, if they find it intriguing for their students, we will help do the research and put things into a format that hopefully is very easily digestible and that they can turn around to use to prepare their students before they come to the performance or to unpack that experience when they get back to the classroom, where they can see tie-ins to different curricula curriculum objectives. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love this idea of if it's intriguing, you should explore that with your students and then, you know, relying on you and your team to build those connections. I love 
that model. That's really super smart. I love this idea of intrigue and curiosity. And I love that about your programming philosophy in particular. Yeah, we, we want students to experience joy and connection. And, you know, we, we're not afraid to program things that are challenging. It's not always just a fun story that you'd see. Oftentimes it is. Uh, but we want you to find the humanity in whatever it is that you see and to walk away going, I have something to chew on or I have something to continue yeah. to think about. I think the long lasting impact of having an experience, like you said, coming to the theater, learning that this is a space for you and then having, like said, something to chew on leaving, that can have ripple effects throughout a child's entire life. Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it's so fun to be in the theater on those days and to hear the giggles or the, the oohs and the ahs or the gasps, depending on what's happening. And that in and of itself is a valuable experience. But I always walk away being assured that in every single audience of students and young people, there is at least one child who has been forever changed. We may not ever know what it was that suddenly made them feel seen or gave them new confidence. I am 100% convinced it happens every single time. So you just outlined really the why school matinee programming and working with educators is important. So on the flip side of that coin, what about family programming? Families have gone through a lot in the last few years. They have had seismic shifts in how they operate, how, <laughs> how they're interacting with the mm -hmm. world. Um, so why is investing in family programming such an imperative, not only for families themselves, but also the future of the art. It's a, it's a really rich question. And there's so many parts of me that I'm like, because it's just wonderful, that's right? It. Like that, that's the <laughs> yeah. answer I want to say, like, just come have these warm, fuzzy moments. And can't you just see at, at the surface level about why this is a good thing? Um, I think for families in particular, they're looking for ways to connect as we've gotten more and more screen focused and more and more busy in our lives. I think uh, to come to the theater and have a shared experience that can be enjoyed by the from the four-year-old to the 10-year-old parents, grandparents, is such a unique thing that we can all be sitting and enjoying something together. And then we can talk about it when we come home and reflect on those memories. I think it's really a wonderful way to build in these meaningful opportunities to land together and to have a shared experience that I think families have really come to appreciate. We're in a really unique moment that we, you know, lost two years of audiences and family programming has to rebuild its audience on a much more rapid cycle as young people age in and out. So that's one of the challenges that I think is not unique to us at this moment. But as families find us, it's been remarkable to hear those reactions and even overhear that in the lobbies as they come in and as they leave about the value that they found. I think as we're thinking about the field as a whole, I think family programming offers a unique aspect to what we do that remains accessible. Some of it's about audience development. It's about planting those seeds of, again, just like we're doing with schools, that theater is for you and it's something that you can enjoy with others. Oftentimes, you know, what entices donors or sponsors to give to our family programming is that idea of growing tomorrow's audience. And that's certainly true. But it's also about audiences of today and providing those high quality experiences, hopefully at a more accessible entry price point than maybe some of the more commercial or evening offerings where parents have to look really hard at can it's different than buying two tickets for a date night when you're suddenly right. buying for kids and multiple and you have to really think through that so to me it it's a big part of just the fabric of how we remain accessible as an organization to our community and saying theater is not just for adults and it's not just for adults of a certain level of means and it's some of the ways that we can break down some of those perceptions of barriers that 
whether they're real or not. We want to be thinking about intentionally as we're thinking about both our audiences of today and our audiences of tomorrow. So in terms of, like you said, there's rapid turnover in family audiences. So because kids grow up and they, they age do. out of, you know, you have preschool audience for the rainbow fish, for instance. And next year, they're no longer interested in the rainbow okay. fish. They're, they're looking for a magic school bus or, you know, something else. In terms of thinking about the programming cycle, the family cycle, and then marketing to that, what are the the factors or considerations you and your team put into reaching out to families, developing family audiences, okay. setting those ticket price points, okay. um, marketing materials, uh, because it is a much more rapidly changing audience base than, okay. you know, your 45 plus, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, you gain a Broadway subscriber in their mid-40s to mid-50s, and hopefully they're going to stay with you for multiple, multiple years. Uh, you know, from a programming standpoint, I'm constantly looking at, well, is this something that's going to be enjoyable both by the young person and the adult in attendance? We want parents to enjoy their time at the theater just as much as young people. And also really thinking about where, which side of the young audience does this skew to? Does this have a broad enough appeal that a preschooler can enjoy it and understand it? And also hopefully students up into elementary school because there might be sibling groups and that kind of thing. And if, if you're leaving out one side of that spectrum, it can be a little bit more challenging for parents to say this was a successful experience to bring the family out for. Um, I think we're really trying to figure out what the right mix is for marketing. You know, we came out the gate with our, our family programming, you know, 12, maybe 13 seasons ago and got a lot of really great response and kind of media attention for it while it was new. And now it's become so baked into our programming that working with media partners hasn't necessarily worked in quite the same way. Uh, so continue to cultivate those media relationships. I think we're doing a lot more with trying to connect with the mom blogs and other avenues that are specifically working with families with young children and just continuing to build that list. And I think one of the things that I've been struck by as we've been welcoming our first family audiences back is the number of families that I hear say, we've never done this before. I have no idea. Um, before all of our family events in our main hall, we do, we take over all of the lobbies and we have all sorts of different family-friendly activities that relate to the show that day, and even people who bought tickets that maybe missed the memo that this is part of the package. These are the things you get to do on top of seeing a great 60-minute show. Um, they're surprised. And I think it's leveraging them to be your next best advocates and to tell your friends because they are hooked in with friends through school or preschool um, and saying, come along with us. I think that is something that we're trying to kind of figure out how to, to activate on. Uh, but that kind of additional level of trust because the word of mouth has has slid off for a couple of years and you do have to continually replenish probably every year 10 to 20 percent of your audience as people age in and out and as you think about parents and everything on their plates oh my gosh they're, they're yeah. just trying to keep their heads above water just so to say let's add one more thing on top of groceries and pickup and just what does everybody need for the next day to have those trusted relationships in their network to say this is a great experience and we've really enjoyed it and you should come along too, I think is the key that we have to keep thinking about. I love that. That is, I think, great advice just across the board, but in particular for those youth and family audiences. And as a parent, <laughs> that resonates so deeply. And the word of mouth truly is, I think, you know, the best recommendation you can mm -hmm. have parent to parent, mom to mom, dad to dad, because yeah, like, who are you going to, who are you going to trust the ad in the newspaper or... <laughs> you know, who you're standing next to in pickup line at mm -hmm. school. Exactly. 
did you even have time to pick up the newspaper or <laughs> to get fed that digital ad? Like, and all of those things no. are important and they matter because it is building that larger awareness. Yeah. And I think when people are seeking, I feel like we're seeking personal, like person to person connection now, because like you mentioned, screen time and everything else has increased so much. It makes a lot of sense to me to really try to cultivate that mouth, <laughs> word of mouth, personal network kind of influence sort of thing. So I love that. Thank you for sharing that. So let's switch gears just a little bit. I know your role in Des Moines has changed a little bit recently, um, and you are now managing the whole education department. Um, And we're similar in age, and we've had a little bit of a similar career trajectory. So I'm just wondering, how is it going managing a team, especially as what we, and maybe an elder millennial, you know? um, (laughs) I think there's been, we've had a lot of conversation in recent years about intergenerational leadership and kind of shifts in the industry as people have come and gone and entered and changed roles. So what is that like managing a team kind of in this phase of life or phase of career for you? I had the opportunity to manage really the day-to-day of the education department before I moved into my current role. So I was working in the day-to-day with many team members, but it's definitely a shift stepping into that director role where I think oftentimes managing the team, I was still kind of maybe thinking about managing programs more than I was thinking about managing people and managing a team. So that's been a little bit of a shift. I don't know if you know this about me, Katie, but I'm a very detail-oriented person (laughs) and I like to be in the weeds. And so it has been an ongoing piece that I've been challenging myself with over the years of how to let some of that go and trust. But I have a fantastic team and just kind of by necessity of both knowing this about myself and watching how capable they are and also seeing the new additional responsibilities that are being added to my plate. It's been this kind of shift in gears of having to say, okay, this is yours now and I am here to be a sounding board and to give advice and somebody that's had tenure with these programs was in many cases with them from the ground up. I can give the history um, and kind of give you some some pitfalls to maybe avoid or some guiding principles, but to really have to stand back and say the day-to-day management of the programs and the design is in your court and I am here and can set vision while I'm also looking at what's the next era of growth for what we're doing and how are we setting ourselves up for that is a really exciting time but there's also times where it's some cognitive dissonance where i'm like oh my comfort zone is maybe over here and this is what i've known for the last decade plus and how do i pull myself back into that that leadership role yeah and as you're thinking about you know you pulled out that phrase elder millennial which suddenly makes my heart go oh what does that mean (laughs) but it's true i think you know Across the industry and in many of our organizations, we've seen our team makeups change quite a bit in the last year and a half to two years as we've been rebuilding uh, people that kind of were re-examining where their career trajectories were taking them. So we have a large influx of really new team members within the last year to our team. And okay, what, what was our team culture before? What is the new culture that we're establishing now? Yeah. And that culture that we're creating that also has this new element to it of we're trying to figure out how do we work in this new era? And how do we work with a new generation in the workplace? You know, when I started at the Moines Performing Arts, I was one of the youngest, if not the youngest member on our full-time team for a window and a period of time. And standing back and looking at my team now, I'm very aware that there's there's a new generation that has joined our team and they are idealistic and they are enthusiastic and they have all of these great ideas. But it's also this change in dynamic of some of like, okay, what do you bring to the table and how do we create this culture that honors our Gen Z voices, our millennial voices, our Gen X voices, and our baby boomer voices? Like there's four generations in the workplace yes. right now. 
And it kind of came all at once as we were rebuilding back is how it feels, at least uh, in, in my lived experience, as I think about the dynamic of our team. So there's all of these kind of confluence factors that are all kind of coming in at one time. So it can be hard to pull apart which aspect are we, we looking at, but it's it's exciting. So then what does that feel like? Like, I, I feel very similarly to you, which is why I wanted to chat with you about this. Like, we, as on the podcast, we call ourselves mid- midfielders. We're the ones that are like been in the industry like 12 to 15 to 18 years, right? So we know what it was like to be the youngest person in the room, uh-huh. right? Like you were just saying, like coming in, fresh ideas, uh, fresh eyes, but not always, you know, um, being in a leadership role. Um, and now we've shifted, right? We've been uh-huh. in the field for a while. We have a lot of experience under our belts. We're not the youngest person in the room anymore, but sometimes, like, I know that I have really had to shift my mentality. So what has that been like for you? And then added the added responsibility of taking on leadership of a team. That idea of being a midfielder, it's it's one of those things that you don't necessarily wake up one day and just realize. But I think there's this extra, like we've had this in mass moment of introspection over the last few years where we're all examining what we want out of our lives, what was our day-to-day before, and what do we want moving forward? And it can be interesting to go, okay, I was on this trajectory and and building and building and building, and now I've kind of reached this new level. And what is it in my work that is still, not that our work is about serving us, but what is it that's still making my heart happy and bringing me joy? What are the things that I am ready to let go of? What are the things that I am eager to to move into to give myself that continuous challenge? And that can feel messy um, in terms of wh- where are we making space for those that are are coming up that we're cultivating and where is space being made for, for yeah, us then. kind of in that midfield to step into those roles. And it's not a clear delineation of you stop and you start. Like it's it's all going all at once. And then you add on top of that, the programming that we're doing and trying to have our programs maintained and this level of quality, I have felt a lot of pressure in that and trying to go, okay, is that pressure self-imposed? Where is that coming from? And really looking at how do I give myself grace while creating that creating that room of saying like, it's going to be messy for a while and that's okay. And we're we're going to learn through that. And it's, it's an opportunity, but keeping that top of mind sometimes is easier said than done. So. So giving ourselves those those moments to pause and think about where we've been, where we're going and saying, <laughs> we don't have to have all of the answers in this exact moment. Yes. We're going to head towards wrapping up. Okay. So think back to the beginning of your career, maybe those college days when you were first getting started and learning the admin side of things. What do you wish you had known then that you know now? I think as a college student, I'm would have had a better sense of the power of relationships in this work. I'm a naturally introverted person and kind of relied on, I'll put my head down and I'll get the work done. And it took really jumping in with both feet and over time to see just the power of building those relationships, not feeling like there has to be a lot of pressure on them for something to happen right away. We were talking about that a little bit earlier. Um, I could have cultivated some of those skills and that would have helped me out a little bit earlier in my career. The other thing that I wish I would have known as a young person, and I still am telling myself this day, is it's okay to give yourself grace and it's okay to, to not always put the pressure on yourself for everything to be perfect. We've had lots of conversations, both interpersonally with friends and colleagues in the industry, as well as kind of industry convenings about the level of burnout 
that our industry can sometimes um, experience. And I think that was exacerbated over the last few years for many of us. How do we set up those healthy boundaries of saying, I love my work. I'm passionate about my work. I will do bring the best of myself to it. But how can I also make sure I am giving myself the space so that I'm maintaining who I need to be outside of this work too is something I'm continuing to think about, but I wish I would have had a little bit more at the forefront of myself as a young person. Yeah. I feel that, Caroline. I really do. <laughs> I, I had a feeling. <laughs> I Yeah, we're in the same headspace. All right, Caroline, wrapping up. Uh, final question. What do you like most about working in the industry today? The thing I love most about working in this industry today is there's just this feeling that when we do well, we all do well. It's such a spirit of generosity. I think one of the things that I love about the arts in general and working in performing arts is our product changes all the time. We get this like, lovely gift to shop and peruse and to fall in love with things and to bring it to our communities. So that helps it feel fresh. But because that product in some ways feels very sterile to talk about what we do, but because what we are bringing and quote unquote selling changes so rapidly, it's oftentimes those relationships that are really what sustain us. So the friendships that I've been able to cultivate with agents, with fellow presenters, with educators in our community. We're going to continue to find new great things that serve our community. The door that's opening that is the relationships that we've cultivated in those sustained relationships. And I think the last few years have been really hard in many ways. And the saving grace was my people, you know, to, ha to have those heart-to-heart uh, -heart conversations. And sometimes they were business-focused and sometimes they were just person-to-person -person about how are you doing? How are you managing? How are you thinking about your work and how you want to intersect with that work? Really is the thing that I feel the most grateful for. And I think it's the thing that feels the most sustaining and the most real. And it's the part that maybe our audience members don't see, but it is so core to what we're able to do to create these great opportunities. And I'm just very, very thankful. Well, that is a perfect note for us to end on. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me today. I just appreciate you so much and what you bring to the youth and family field. I appreciate our relationship, both personal and professional. And I'm just grateful that you gave us the time today. Thank you, Katie. That was such a great interview with so much great insight into family programming, not just family programming, but um, the education role within theater. Um, there were a lot of different things in there that I hadn't thought about. One of the things with family programming is how fast the audience turns over with that, with the kids growing out of it. Audience retention is literally impossible because the kids grow up and how much of a challenge it is because you have to build that audience almost from scratch every year or a portion of it every year as kids age out. Um, and, and I thought that was a really interesting thing that I just hadn't wrapped my head around before. Josh, frankly, I had the same reaction to that. And Caroline and I had a similar conversation about that point in particular, I don't know, maybe four or five months before we recorded this interview. And I think I knew that in the back of my brain, but had never heard it vocalized like that before about audience turnover. Um, 10 to 20% of your audience is, is aging out. And frankly, since then, like that has changed everything about how I'm thinking about marketing for families and the strategies that I'm working with our marketing team on. And that's why I love Caroline is because she is so embedded in the work and she has so much experience that I really think that she thinks about things so much differently than a lot of us in the family and school matinee programming sphere. Katie, I really loved your conversation. It covered so many different topics and there's so much that I learned in that. I loved your question about curriculum and I loved Caroline's response talking about sometimes 
it may not be a direct match with curriculum, but it's still important to present. And that it made me think a lot even about how she likes to look at the whole family and see if it'll be something that will appeal to not only the toddler, but the older child and be something that the parents or grandparents would enjoy sitting through. And that's something that resonates with me having just launched a family series myself, trying to attract a multi-generational type of audience. Well, and speaking about the way it appeals to different people in the family, I love that the way that she presented that it's it's not just an entertainment experience it's a way to connect with your kids or your grandkids and I, I love that point about the programming itself yeah i think a lot about what my like mission statement or like my curatorial sort of thought process is on booking a, a just a youth and family season and i like to think of it as really just a family series and in some ways kind of taking the focus on a certain age group or the children kind of out of it? And what is the experience that a whole family can come and have together? If the family, the parents and the grandparents are involved in the performance, then it makes that experience a lot richer for the child. And then you're also from an audience development standpoint, I mean, you are still building a core group of people that are going to continue to come and see theater together, if that is something that they really do enjoy. Um, and my absolute favorite thing is to just stand in the lobby after the show and listen to adults talking as they walk by and be like, you know, that was really good. Yeah. You know, I really liked that. <laughs> that to me is like, I am like nailing it. <laughs> if the adults are like, hey, you know, like, oh, I don't know, I could have enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, that ties nicely into her conversation about like the importance of um, pro of family programming and the importance of like, you know, arts like that and how we sort of, you know, do have to get bogged down in some of those details of like audience development for the future. And we're, you know, building these things um, when she's right. Like you just want to say like, because it's wonderful, uh, because it's really amazing. And I always think about that, like when talking to donors of like, hey, um, just come with me, like come with me to a school to see this, because the thing that you can't bottle in those experiences is being in that room when with all of those, you know, hundreds or thousands of kids like experiencing something either for the first time or just being 100 percent engaged with what's happening on stage. And once you see that, you go, oh, I get it. Um, and then you can obviously dive into all the other things like, yeah, this is teaching them that they can go, you know, we're building an audience for the future because if they like this now, they're going to try out for it in the future. They're going to take their families to it. The only thing that Caroline didn't mention that I think is also worth um, pointing out is by seeing things on stage, it teaches kids that they can also do that, that they can go and be performers, that they can also, you know, maybe somebody someday wants to have one of our jobs as well. And it sort of ties all that together just by seeing a performance either, you know, in a performing arts center or, you know, in your school. And I think her points about access regarding both the matinee, the school matinee side of things and the family programming side of things, whether that's a, a free or a very inexpensive ticket on the matinee side or um, really inexpensive tickets on the family side is the access point is super important. I always ask when I get up on stage in front of our matinee audiences for the students to raise their hand if it's their first time ever seeing a live performing arts event. And inevitably, it's 50% of the I audience. I do the same. I love yeah. I love doing that. Mm -hmm. And frankly, when I'm reporting out numbers on our matinee programs, I include the number of adults that attend as well as the number of students. Because if those kids, if this is their first time in our space or their first time in a performing arts 
event, likely their educators and their parents that are accompanying them, it's the same for them as well. So it's not only access for the students, but it's access for adults in their lives as well. Um, and thinking about the affordability factor, thinking about scholarships, thinking about transportation, those barriers to access and participation. And we didn't really like dig into like the busing issues and the funding issues that schools are facing right now in our conversation. But believe me, we're having them <laughs> outside in, in the theater for young audiences space. Um, those are things that you know, the sector is struggling with, schools are struggling with, and anything that we can do as arts administrators and professionals and working in partnership with community organizations and school districts to lower those barriers to access, the more successful those programs are going to be. Um, so I came up um, in the industry in an education department, and a lot of what Caroline was talking about as far as just managing all of the different programs and aspects an education department does really hit home for me. There's an incredible sharing that I think happens between a lot of the major education theater creators in the country. And as far as creating ideas for programming that can be replicated in other places, it's a hard process, depending on what um, those programs are, to replicate it in a certain area because everybody's got a different population. Their geography is different. There's so many different things, but like the core of the program can really be applied and I think it's really important and can't be understated about how us working together has also helped to build more of a workforce um, and people that are able to enter the industry and making these education programs um, a lot larger because that really is allowing us to do a lot more outreach and a lot of the free and reduced price programming that a lot of people are really trying to add into their offering because it does open those doors. I also thought it was really interesting the way that Caroline framed up her role in leadership um, about, you know, transitioning from managing programs to managing people. That is something that I think took me a while to to make that transition. Um, and I, I would argue I, I still have problems with that um, because like her, I like to sort of be in the mix of things and kind of be, you know, sort of that boots in the ground and kind of be involved, but also realizing that there is a reason that we have the team that we have here and they're all very good at their jobs and I can't do everything, um, nor can, can one person. And yeah, it's, you know, figuring out how to, to manage people and expectations versus the day-to-day -day of the programs. And that was framing that up. I thought was, was really nice and sort of important to highlight. She used the word honor, honor the ideas and experiences of every generation that's in the room. Those are like the words that I have been searching for is everyone has something to bring to the table, right? And we've all been the youngest person in the room and know what that struggle is like. And now we are, the group of us are kind of in the middle of our careers and we are then hearing and, and working with folks that have more experience than us. And I, I just really love this idea of honoring all of that and bringing it together and working collaboratively and really showing that every voice and from every generation has value. I also love that you and Caroline met through Zoom and then eventually finally met in real life, but you developed a friendship because of Zoom meetings over the pandemic. And in turn, it just makes me wonder how much more connection there really is and that has happened in the industry because we were forced to just be at our screens for so long that wasn't there before because we didn't have the time to do that before. 
I hear a lot of people talk now like, oh, you have to be in the office because that's the only way to have, build rapport. I mean, Katie and I also met on Zoom and I hope to someday be her friend as well. And, um, <laughs> but I'm saying like, I've made a lot of, a lot of genuine connections through Zoom with people that I haven't met face to face yet. And then when I do, it's like, we've already built, it's not because now we're meeting in person now that we can have a real relationship. No, we, we actually became friends before we actually saw each other in person and because of all these meetings. And so it is possible online as well. Zoom curated these relationships that wouldn't have happened otherwise because we would have just been in the office. I would say, though, that a lot of the connections I made during the pandemic would have never happened just because of purely geography. And so I'm really grateful for that. And I am really grateful for my relationship with Caroline. I want to be Caroline when I grow up, if that wasn't evident from the course of our conversation. So thank you so much, Caroline, for your time, for sharing your wisdom with us. And we will see you the next time around on There's No Business Like. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vanho. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslife.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus ness every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. I have crackers in the back of my throat. Um, <laughs> it's like scratchy. What, what did you have for lunch? Crackers. <laughs> crackers. Was it just crackers? Were you not listening? <laughs> Damn it, Kevin. <laughs> 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 no <laughs> sorry now you're gonna lose me to the giggle um, <laughs> that's never happened before <laughs> sorry, I, can't even, I can't even talk uh okay no i had um cheese and crackers and like one of those tuna pouches and then my boss you want anything from jimmy john's i was like oh bring me back a pickle you know how they do like the big pickles and they slice them up and <laughs> I was like, oh, that'll clear out those crackers. <laughs> and so he did. He brought one back with his sandwiches for other people, but they didn't slice it. So then I had to like get a knife and like cut it up. And it was a whole ordeal. No, you can eat that like um, a long apple. <laughs> Rather than just eat it like a pickle. <laughs> That is the only. Well, I can't just say eat it like a pickle because she already said she slices those up. So, um, but in any of eat it like a uh, banana. <laughs> this food segment has been brought to you by. Welcome to Pickle Town. <laughs>